The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. John Lennon had a traumatic upbringing filled with abandonment and loss. These miseries shaped his internal life, his attachments to other people, and his creative endeavors throughout his tragically cut short life. Feelings of longing buried in his unconscious drove him to write many of the most important songs of the last century. My guest today is Jordan Runtug, one of the two hosts of the podcast Rivals, a show about the greatest music rivalries in history. So I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to get him on to discuss one of the most well-known musicians of all time. This conversation went long, but it was all so good that we decided to turn it into two episodes. This first one will cover John's early life, right up to the point before the Beatles really explode in popularity. So with that, let's start at the beginning. John Lennon, born October 1940 in Liverpool. Not in the midst of a bombing raid, has been you know said in, in legend, but it's a pretty good metaphor for his upbringing. Just constant state of conflict, running for safety and shelter. It was World War II. World War II. Liverpool was a major bombing target because of it was an industrial port city. Trauma going on all around him, so to speak. I mean, people were very concerned. It was a difficult time. There was a lot of rationing, and his mother and father... His father being a merchant marine who was being intermittently shipped out. We're definitely barely making ends meet, let's say. Um, and we're a very young married couple. Very, very young. And and not exactly happily married either. They essentially married uh, on a dare. 
shall we say. His father, Alfred Lennon, was something of a, to be kind, a smooth-talking rogue, something of a cad, I should say. And then John's mother, her name was Julia Stanley, was very much like John, went for broke, flaunted convention, was a a real fun-loving renegade. She was described even in later years as sort of vivacious and playful on the upside, right? And very charming in that sense. On the downside, perhaps very irresponsible, irresponsible, (laughs) selfish, self-involved. And important to note that her parents did not want her to marry him. Oh, absolutely This was not an approved of marriage. I mean, as, you know, every every Romeo and Juliet story, she mostly married him, I'd say, despite her family. And she, I guess she came home and put the marriage license down on the table. So there, I've gone and done it. And so rebellious. Rebellious. Very. It's something John probably would have done in uh, ex- some way, Exactly. Too. And so, you know, we think about attributes or let's say of less than attributes that he perhaps got from his parents. She was the kind of counterculture, anti-authoritarian, rebellious one in the pair. Very much so. And and John's mom and dad were rarely together. I, I read something that he probably spent no more than two months at a stretch with them both in the same house at any point in his childhood before the age of maybe six. Because as you said, his dad was a merchant seaman and was constantly shipped out. He would send money home, but it often it dried up and he spent some time in Algerian prisons. And he there's a famous story of him in London getting drunk and breaking into a, a women's department store window and stealing a dress and just waltzing down Oxford Street in a dress. So he had and his the, own rebellious, his own anti-authoritarian. Too. But shortly after John's birth, he goes off to sea on a, on a mission. I mean, it was this was his job, and this is what he had to do. Yeah. He was he basically uh, sort of looked for German U-boats or dodged them as he brought supplies back to Britain. And while he was gone, though at time at, things were good when he left. Over time, even though she initially seemed to be happy and taking care of John and having a baby, over time she would leave him and go to pubs and drink and flirt and get involved with other men. Many other men. There's a series of of lovers uh, that she would bring home. It was obviously very confusing to young John. One of them she ended up becoming uh, pregnant by. And then uh, Alfred came home after 18 months away, showed up as she was pregnant with another man's uh, child. Huge fight in the house between the three of them. John apparently witnessed it. And he was maybe four or five years old. Mm-hmm. And it, and he, he remembers it years later. He doesn't remember, he didn't know at the time, obviously, what was happening, but he absorbed that anger that was happening in the house. The relationship with this other man, his name was Taffy Williams, didn't last. Um, but, but what was important is that in that fight, basically John's father removed John and said, I'm leaving, I'm taking my kid with me. He gave John for a period of time to his brother, and this uncle, the amount of chaos in this little child's life and his ability to attach to any one person was really compromised by the fact that father leaves, father comes back, then child is taken away, stays with the father a while. Now he's with the uncle, the father's brother for a while. Oh, he's moved around. So, and more people before that too, because Julia, when, when Alfred was away, stayed with her father, stayed with her sisters, right. stayed with her cousins. I mean, it's just the amount of upheaval in his young life before the age of five was ridiculous. And then there was a crucial, crucial moment in the age of five. The father has come back, has taken John, goes away with him to sort of a beach location, if you will. It's called Blackpool, yeah. Exactly. And is in his own mind crafting a plan that maybe he's going to take John with him and and go to New Zealand. And the two of them will will leave Julia for good, essentially, and he will have John. And Julia understands that this is about to happen. She finds the father. 
and they have an argument and they both turn to John, who is five, and say, who do you want to live with? In reality, I think that he was actually probably going to stay up in Blackpool with his father, who would probably be away as much as he always was at sea. So it was a case of, do you want to live up here with these family members that you really don't have any connection to, or do you want to go back down to the life you've ever really known in in Liverpool? But psychically... But psychically, it it was still a choice. For for a five-year-old who has definitely does not have the cognitive or developmental capacity to make such a choice. But what's important about this memory is less so its accuracy right. than, than, That's how he believed than it to what be. John Lennon believed it to be and yeah. reported it to be, which is that he had to make this choice, yeah. this unchoosable situation, essentially, that he initially said, I'll stay with my father because he'd been with his father. Yeah. Uh, the mother, in his memory of it, turns and walks out. He can't bear it. He runs after her. No, mommy, I'll stay with you. He leaves with his mother. And then, of course... He doesn't see his father for another 20 years. So in his fantasy memory of this tragic event, he basically chooses away from his father and loses his father for two decades. And he goes with his mother, who fairly promptly gets involved with another man, marries him. It's not a good situation. This man, there's domestic violence in the house. Yeah. He he doesn't like this guy at all. He's quite an alcoholic. Mean. Yeah. He's an alcoholic. It's miserable. So even though he chose his mom and his mom brought him home, he doesn't get his mom, right? No. She's sort of with this other man and absentee emotionally for him. And he goes to live with his aunt Mimi. Right. And something that, that that's not really mentioned much is that actually he believed that his mother gave him away. That is how he believed it, really, I, as far as I know, to the end of his life. In reality, his aunt Mimi had kind of been lobbying for many years. She'd seen what was going on from the sidelines, knew that this little boy was was bright and aware of some kind of chaos that was happening around him. He might not have been able to put down exactly what was to, was going on, but, yeah. but he was smart enough to know this wasn't right. And she was really worried about him. And I think the final straw was when uh, Julia and her new lover moved into a new apartment that had one bed and they all shared one bed. And that, I think, was was so shocking to Mimi that she said, all right, you know what? I think she basically did the equivalent of contacting social services and got John placed in her care. I don't think John knew any of that, but that adds another layer of confusion. Uh, Well, you could say confusion, but really, again, abandonment. His mother gave him away. It's also important to note that, yes, indeed, he seemed quite privy to what went on in the marital bed. And in fact, he himself discusses having seen sexual goings on between his mother and her husband, probably at an earlier age than he could necessarily process in a way that was healthy for him, that stimulated sexual feelings that he maybe didn't know where to go with them, so to speak, uh, but certainly the sexuality of his mother. And then longing for his mother and being, in his mind, given away to this aunt who by all accounts, was... Um, the best thing for him. Right, was... was it, I mean, she was structured. She introduced him to everything from table manners <laughs> to religion, but to also to literature. Literature, yeah. And things that became important. And actually, he really quotes a lot later in life in terms of what went into his music also. So uh, poetry... Lewis Carroll, mm-hmm. a very important... James Joyce. Uh, exactly. Things that he read in that house 
and went to school and participated in that later crop up as important to him in his feeling states and in his music. Absolutely. And as you say, very structured, strict but fair. They kind of appealed to each other on an intellectual level. He loved making her laugh because she was, again, very stern, but he could always kind of get through to her that way. Her husband, John's uncle George, was by all accounts a sweet, sweet man, probably the only uncomplicated loving relationship in his childhood. It was very affectionate, give him candy, the kids, and he was a dairy farmer and, and would deliver milk to people's houses and would sing as he did it. And I think gave John his first um, harmonica, one of his first musical instruments, a character in John's early life that really doesn't get discussed very much, but was a huge influence. And when John was a boy, I think he was 12, George dropped dead of non-alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver, which is something, you know, you don't expect somebody who doesn't drink a lot to have. Right. He just, he, John was out to play and he, he just literally dropped dead in the house. Boys, I think even now, aren't really taught. It's okay to be, emote. Exactly. But mm -hmm. boys in the 50s in Britain, absolutely not. He Apparently, he he just went up to his bedroom and just laughed. Uh, is, is the, right. The, the, this odd laughing response that he had to, subsequently to uh, some other deaths that occurred. But it's important to know, and this will be important later when we talk about really the most pivotal loss of his life, but that, as you point out, in Britain, <laughs> in the 50s, it wasn't just that boys weren't supposed to emote. Nobody. Nobody was supposed to emote. So, you know, the reaction to deaths was, you know, if you were going to cry, it had to be in private. You know, you, you couldn't really talk about loss. You couldn't talk about sadness and agony. You had to have that stiff upper lip. Yeah. And religion was supposed to be your big solace and you were supposed to have faith and everything happened for a reason. The tone was set for repression. Right. <laughs> and in that every is, sense. In every sense. Sexual, and emotional. Exactly. And that's how you were supposed to behave. Of course, we know that, you know, feelings don't disappear just because you've repressed them. And in fact, in some ways, when you repress them, they have even more power to influence behavior and feeling states. And in that sense, all of this chaos and tumult and abandonment and then loss, as John headed into his teenage years, he became, by all accounts, increasingly angry, mm. rebellious, misbehaving, aggressive. And so he's described as a teenager in school as someone who originally was doing well as a student in oh, grammar school bright. and middle school, clearly bright, uh, a really promising student. Now he heads into high school and he's cutting classes. He's starting fights, starting fights, right? He's, he's having physical fights, very vitriolic with all kinds of people. And it's like, just really says terrible and biting and crass things to push people away. Again, defensively not an unusual style for someone who has struggled with a lot of ambivalent attachments to people. This is the, the point I want to make. When you have a, a young childhood where it's not you're just abandoned and left, but in fact, you go back and forth. You mm. attach, but you never know if that person to whom you've gotten all of these warm attachment feelings is going to stick around. You could suddenly be dropped or abandoned and have it go back and forth, you develop what Bowlby, an important psychologist, would have called an avoidant, ambivalent attachment style. And what that means is more than the average person, you long for attachment. You desperately need and want someone to be that person that's with you all the time. But at the same time, you have a great paranoia and a great fear that at any moment that will be ripped out from under you. And so people like that often appear highly neurotic, intermittently struggle with depression, terrible anxiety, lots of jealousy, 
and lots of aggression. Mm -hmm. And so that is what we start to see as John Lennon becomes a teenager, that he starts to behave this way toward friends, supposedly, or, you know, um, mates in school. Um, and Aunt Mimi. Aunt Mimi. And that is not surprising given his background. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a minute. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first like worthington and liz claiborne for her each in women's petite and plus sizes and stafford and mutual weave for him style and comfort for all even big and tall plus even more for the whole family like levi's and exertion here spring comes in all shapes sizes and colors jc penny make everybody count When we left off, the teenage John Lennon was having trouble adjusting to a quieter, more suburban life with his Aunt Mimi. Years of instability had taken their toll, and now suddenly, his mother comes back into the picture. As he progressed into adolescence and would butt heads more and more with Aunt Mimi, he started to sort of secretly at first visit his mother, who lived two miles away, had a spare bedroom, had now two daughters with this this other man. And Mimi 
at first very much discouraged that she didn't want to confuse him. She just thought she was a bad influence also. But uh, ultimately, she couldn't stop him from visiting his mother. And who really behaved more like an indulgent aunt or a big sister. She kind of encouraged him skipping off school. Whenever he, he did skip school, he would more often than not go to her house. But she did uh, encourage him. He started to get into music. This was the, the mid-50s when Elvis Presley, Gene Vinson, Eddie Cochran, all these people that were huge influences on John. Lonnie Donegan, the skiffle star, uh, started putting records out. And Julia was unusual with most of the adults in John's life because she actually liked this stuff. She, she got, even got a cat and named it Elvis, which she thought was amazing. She was playing those records at her house anyway. Oh, yeah. Because no. that's, she was buying these records and right. playing these records, whereas Mimi was like, Absolutely not. You will be listening to classical music at at our home. That's what they did. In addition, she would buy John the T-shirts and the tight (laughs) jeans. Colorful shirts, yeah. And all of the sort of get up so that he could pull off this look of being what they called a teddy boy. Yeah. Which was a toughie. Like a tough guy. <laughs> Which is and, funny now because you look at them and they, they look, you know, they look preppy almost. They yeah, don't look in any way yeah, tough. But, but. but at the time, that was like, if you were like the bad boy, that was the look. Yeah. Like a rock and roller. His mother really supported this whole self-image that yeah. he was developing. And again. Taught he, him his first song too. Oh, and that was his first song was uh, "Ain't That a Shame," a uh, Fats Domino song that, oh, yeah. that she'd heard. She probably heard the Pat Boone version, but yeah. And so, I mean, it, she uh, she played banjo around the house and taught him uh, how to play banjo. That was his first real music education. Was his mom taught him? So she was really mom. the the instrumental in the beginning yeah. of this development of music. Now he was clearly viewed himself as artistic and yes. creative. And, and in Drew, fact, he, drew, he was a, right. He, he was a good drawer. Well, let's say he was a brilliant drawer, but he was, he was a good drawer. Like James promise. Thurber, pen and ink, very mm-hmm. surreal mm-hmm. Um, illustrator, I think is probably what he'd call himself. He liked drawing pen and ink kind of surreal drawings, uh, wrote poetry, funny sort of James Joycean, almost like Jabberwocky, yes. that kind of style. Again, very important because ultimately, I mean, you know, when you think about Music, the the lyrics are essentially poetry. And so that was something he started early and something, again, encouraged by his mother. And importantly, ultimately, he, his first band, which was in high school, they practiced at the mother's house because that's where they could practice. Oh yeah, Mimi wouldn't let him have friends. On the rare occasion that she let John's friends into her home, it was through the back door, (laughs) which is... Says a lot about Mimi. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, they would go over to his mother's house. And so he would bounce back and forth between being repressed, with all probably good intentions, but being repressed through Mimi. She would throw away his drawings and poetry and basically beg him in more strict terms than that, but really urge him to just focus and, and get on the straight and narrow and just and be secure. And it came from her you know, raising a, a single woman in the 50s in Britain, raising a teenage boy. I mean, she she needed him to get and, it and, together. And wanted, wanted him to be able to be self-sufficient. Right, and, exactly. And, and not be like his mother, essentially. Right. or his father. <laughs> or his father, for that matter, right. In this period of time, then, really regains a closeness with his mother. Hmm. I think it's important to understand, though, that it's very normal for children, especially younger children, when they first start experiencing sort of sexual feelings to feel those feelings for the parent of the opposite sex, right? We call that the Oedipal complex to to be attracted to. But as one ages, one represses that attraction. 
You might transfer it on to another person. It is not unusual for people to marry people who are a lot like the parent of the opposite sex, (laughs) though nobody wants to know that's what's going on, right? But in this case, the fact that John was A, very privy to a lot of sexual goings on Mm -hmm. in the home with his mother and witnessing it, B, that his mother didn't act like a mother, that she didn't create a distance, that she tried to be the fun, seductive, artsy, out there, ingenue, (laughs) exactly, left this door open for more sexual attraction from John toward his mother, something that he really referred to even later in his life. He kept a private audio diary in the late 70s, which was subsequently found and then published in in numerous biographies. So it's out there. And he talks about an afternoon, and I'll put it in more delicate terms, and he did, basically lying on the bed with his mother one afternoon, home alone with just her. He thought in the moment, and I, I guess for the rest of his life, thought about whether or not he should have, in his words, tried something. Made a move. Made a move, yeah. And in um, fact, he refers to having his hand on her breast. Yes. And that he probably should have done something more. Presuming she would have allowed Pres- it. Presuming <laughs> she would have allowed it. A sexual fantasy that is fairly intense and very. actually very accessible. That's what's unusual. It is not unusual yeah. for kids to have, or even later, perhaps older kids to have, such a fantasy, but it's usually really repressed and unavailable to them. So this longing for his mother, who is constantly, intimately unavailable to him, and it being sexualized, I think heightens his not only desire for in a mommy way, but sexual desire for his mom. And and that remains important, as we'll we'll talk about later in terms of the threads of his music and the threads of his future relationships and how they need to be for him, so to speak. So he has this intensity of feeling about his mom. He's developing the person that maybe he wants to be or he feels is the direction that he can take, should take, feels good about. He can't get into college because his grades are so poor. Non-existent. Aunt Mimi, in trying to save him, manages to wangle him essentially into an art school. But he is already now playing music in a band and he's already met Paul McCartney and brought the two of them together. And so they're already operating at the same time that he's sort of in this art school, sort of doing some art. Exactly. Yeah. And John didn't like his relationships to be equal at at that part in his life. He liked being the ringleader. He liked having a gang sort of follow him around. Paul was really one of the few, one of the first people of his own age in his life, well, Paul's a little younger, that he respected as an equal, respected him musically. Paul went and saw John's band, The Quarrymen, play. And Paul was impressed, thought he was a little sloppy, but impressed, and went backstage after, and they had a mutual friend who introduced them. And Paul said, hey, can I borrow your guitar? I, I, you know, I know how to play a little bit too. And he's left-handed, so he plays it upside down, which already blows John's mind. It's like, wow, you can play it both ways? Wow. And he plays um, one of John's favorite songs, uh, 20 Flight Rock by Eddie Cochran. And he knows all the words. John can't remember words to save his life. He's, he's, he's more big picture. Paul learns the solos, learns the words. And so that kind of made him you know, super, super respect. Paul, like the fact that, okay, he's good. He's real good. And uh, he proved himself in that moment in a way that really no one else, I think, in, in John's life at that age did. And so from that point on, they were bonded musically. 
And Paul had lost his mother a few years earlier to cancer when he was 14. And John would say to him at this point, like, oh my God, how can you just exist normally when your mom's dead? Like, if something like that ever happened to me, I would completely go crackers. I would lose my mind. I can't believe you, you, you continue to function. Obviously, in a way, prophetic, not long after. He went to Julia's house. John went yes. to Julia's house to go see her. She wasn't there. She was actually at Mimi's house. They had just missed each other. Julia and Mimi would have like sort of a weekly tea. They'd repaired their relationship a little bit. And so Julia was leaving Mimi's house, was crossing a, a, the busy street in front of her house, and a car came and struck her. Two things that are, are just of note when we think later again about John Lennon's music and lyrics. She was struck by an off-duty police officer who was only 24, actually, who actually apparently only had his learner's permit. Yeah. And so there were a lot of questions as to whether his mother was in the wrong in that moment or whether and it was something that the driver did. But also important that she was taken to the hospital because Mimi heard the accident. She was alive, apparently, when she was taken to the hospital, but died. And it was a police officer who then came and told John at the home what had happened. And his interaction with police, so to speak, yeah. is set in a certain kind of way in terms of being notified and being responsible for the death, but subsequently finding that it was the fault of his mother and questions about that. His immediate reaction was stunned and then remarkably, you know, non-emotional. Yeah. Everybody's reaction was remarkably non-emotional. In fact, the attempt to repress everybody's response to Julia's death, she has two daughters. The daughters are shipped away and told mm. at the time that they're shipped away for a long period of time. And Mimi doesn't have much of an emotional response. This is sad, but life goes on. The husband similarly seems to not have that much of an emotional reaction. Oh, he outraged John. I guess one of his first reactions was, who's going to look after the kids? And John... Oh, selfish guy. I can't believe that's what, you know, that, he, that's he, that, he never forgot that. that completely outraged him. He, again, doesn't have like a vehicle, an audience, support group to really grieve with. Undoubtedly, this may have furthered his bond with Paul McCartney, who, as you said, had lost his mother and somebody that he could be with who maybe would understand at least what yeah. it was like. As you say, I mean, you're right. No one in his immediate family really was able to provide the support system and just even sort of more cruel. The accident happened right outside of his bedroom window, basically. He wasn't specifically told that, but he worked it out where it would have happened. So it was a sort of a constant reminder of this gaping hole in his life. And you're right. He and Paul, a lot of it went unspoken, but it was definitely a bond they shared. And it was something that they knew each other understood. And that was kind of enough that there was somebody else there who got it. I don't think there were too many instances of them actually having heart-to-hearts about it specifically. Well, John had no heart-to-hearts. That, right. that yeah. is really the, the, <laughs> the point that he really, he didn't process it. He didn't, you know, we think about like, how do you deal with grief? And there's no question, but that John Lennon repeatedly said, this was the biggest trauma of his life. This mm. was the biggest loss of his life. No doubt made much, much more so by the fact that he constantly had this longing for this mother who kept disappearing and reappearing. Yeah. But now he, she had reappeared and he was with her and this abrupt loss that you can't come back from, right? You can't get back together again after death. And the ability to process grief usually is in talking about it and being able to think about it and being able to express it in 
it seems that that was something that he couldn't do for the collection of reasons of, you know, who was around him, the times that they were. Who he was. Who he was already, right? His style yeah. of already dealing with everything, which was to be highly defended and highly repressed. And so he doesn't resolve this. It's, it's important in the sense that in numerous songs, particularly, you know, song julia yeah. uh, mother that he writes these lyrics that are just i call your name but you're not there was i to blame for being unfair he always said later on you, you i mean that's an early song of his but he always said there was a lot in those words that he don't i don't think he even consciously realized i call your name but you're not there was i to blame yeah, he would later say, you know, I lost her twice. I lost her when I was five, and then I lost her again more permanently at 17. And, and when it happened, it was it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And when it did happen, I felt, you know what? I have no responsibilities to anyone now. Obviously, is traumatic and horrific and in a way that, that cannot be overemphasized. In a strange way, I think it, he felt liberated by it. Obviously not saying that this is a good thing right. at all. You could say, well, you could say on the upside, liberated. You could say on the downside, unmoored, feeling essentially that there was no structure and nothing keeping him, quote, at home. Yeah. He leaves. He goes with the band, right? To, to Germany. To Germany, <laughs> to Hamburg. And in a way, finds himself, or a little bit more of himself, let's say, as they play together. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a minute. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. So John has just had to deal with the death of his mother, who he was very close to. As a method of coping, he started to throw himself into his music, as well as other, more destructive things. In the immediate aftermath of his mother's death, this happened in 1958, and the Beatles went to Hamburg in 1960. And in that period, he really sort of, as probably a lot of men did at that time, drowned his sorrows in alcohol, and it was, as you said, acted out would smash up telephone boxes and get into fights and, and was really difficult to deal with. Put his music on hold for a couple months until Paul kind of coaxed him back. But yeah, Germany was where he really, he grew up. He would always say, I was born in Liverpool, but I grew up in Hamburg, Germany. They were called the Beatles at that point. Had a, uh, a residency there. Just boys let off the leash was how they would always put it. Well, so in high school, he'd already discovered sex and alcohol. Yes. Um, so he was he was already involved. But after the death of his mother and going to Hamburg, there was now sex, alcohol, drugs. <laughs> yes, and, in abundance. And abundance and nobody's schedule. They played all night. So their whole schedule was topsy-turvy. But they grew their presence, essentially, and they grew their cohesiveness. Give us the timing of when did they add in Ringo and George and... They, well, it's funny. They, they went to Germany with an art school friend of John's named Stuart Sutcliffe, who was more so than Paul at this period, his best friend right. and a, a mentor. He was, they're about the same age, but they were an odd couple. Stuart was incredibly gifted painter. Stuart, who became his best friend, and he met Cynthia, who would become his wife. Um, two odd couples. Two, exactly. two odd couples, but in art school. But Stuart, right, goes off with him essentially to, to Germany. And, and he really, really respected Stu. He said, I relied on Stu to tell me the truth, which is a great thing to say about anybody. Really, really. And, and Stuart was in the band, not really because he was a great musician, but John wanted him there. And they were really close. And of course, that caused a lot of jealousy with Paul, who not only was jealous of the friendship, but also thought he wasn't a very good musician, which he, he wasn't. And they were very, very close. And when they were in Germany, they met a bunch of art of German art students who would have a big influence on the band in terms of their style, names that fans might know, Klaus Vormann, who designed the Revolver album cover, and this woman, Astrid, I can never say her last name, sorry, Astrid, Astrid Kircher, who was kind of like the band's first stylist. The Beatle haircuts kind of came from her and their early leather image and kind of moody, almost like French New Wave style with the collarless Pierre Cardin jackets and stuff. That was all her. And she fell in love with Stuart. And so Stuart left the band when they left Germany to live with her and they ended up getting engaged. And he and John, even though they were, you know, countries apart, stayed close. And then when the band were going back to Hamburg in 1962, they got to the airport. They're flying, man. That's where things are starting to pick up. They got to the airport and Astrid met them there. And John said, well, where's Stu? 
And he died the day before in this freak brain hemorrhage. He'd been suffering from really severe headaches, debilitating headaches for the last year and a half, two years. And no one knew why. And, and he had a brain hemorrhage and died. A horrible loss. But again, he laughed. He laughed. He just, I mean, because it came out of off. nowhere. Mm-hmm, I mean, just mm-hmm. all these deaths that, that were just shocking. I mean, his uncle, his mother, his best friend in the space of, what, eight years, six right. years, something like that. A crucial age. John would have been 21 at, at this yes. later loss. And none of these old people. None these of these are, are old people, who, no. Who didn't get to live their full lives. And so. they were the few people that he actually really allowed himself to connect to. So that that's another one that I think doesn't get mentioned enough. And he had a guilt complex too because they the the theory is that the head trauma that caused this would have been from a fight after a gig and he joined the band because john wanted him there and so he was haunted by this the rest of his life at the same time he's involved with cynthia they're a couple they're a couple it didn't make much sense no one ever was really sure what they saw in each other i think that he was attracted to how submissive she was i mean it's a terrible thing to say now but but, but, but it's very important it's yeah. very important to john she who, changed a lot for him and she would be with him yes. and accept all kinds of behaviors from him and not leave still be there with him and he was awful to her i mean he hit her and i think she did actually leave briefly after that incident like it was he was fiercely jealous absolutely fiercely jealous of course as most jealous people are he didn't hold himself to that standard at all when he went away to hamburg he did whatever he wanted with so whoever he, would, he, wanted. he would sleep with whoever oh yeah he was constantly angry and jealous and paranoid about her. Mm-hmm. Again, not surprising, coming from this avoidant, ambivalent attachment childhood where the thought would be, you know, anytime I can't see you, you might be leaving me. Right. You might be yeah. abandoning me. So that would prime someone to be a very jealous other, as he was all the time, actually. In addition, when you're cheating, to be honest, you imagine it's not that difficult for your partner to do the same thing, (laughs) which would only add to your jealousy, but she would always come back and always be there. That might've been to him at that stage in his life when he has such desperate longings for someone to stay attached to him might've been enough. Like that might've been the thing that, you know, would make you qualify, so to speak, to be the other. But he was also, as you point out, he was completely absorbed in his music and being with the band and performing with the band, he added Ringo at this- Ringo came last in, in 1962. They had a drummer all through Hamburg, this guy named Pete Best. And he, he never really jailed. They kind of had him on just because he had a drum kit, which was an expensive item in, in the early 60s. And he just was there and available. So they took him. And before they knew it, a couple of years went by. But as they said later, he wasn't really- someone that they would have necessarily chosen given an option. And while they were in Hamburg, they became close with Ringo, who's in a different band over there. And they ended up, uh, when they went to have a, a record demo session, the record producer, their longtime producer, George Martin, didn't like the drummer. And so that was kind of all they needed to hear. It was like, all right, we need to actually get somebody we like who's good. And they, yeah, they went with Ringo. So the, the lineup was, was cemented by August of 62. And they had a manager by that point, Brian Epstein, who was a... I would say the closest thing to a paternal figure that John had throughout the tumultuous rise of Beatlemania all through the 60s. He was a paternal figure, and John was the closest in the group to him, Mm. although John was also the one who would viciously abuse him him about being Jewish, about being gay, and just on and on. 
and on. And yet they had this intense closeness. Very intense. It's been suggested that Brian first wanted to manage the Beatles because he went and saw them and absolutely fell in love with John on the spot when he was on stage. He, he As you said, he was gay. He liked kind of rough, they called them like dock worker type guys, like leather clad, rough, aggressive men, particularly men who weren't gay as John was not, at least as far as we all know. That's a bit too simplistic, but he definitely had strong feelings for John in a way that John could reciprocate, but John knew it. And so he would sometimes use that to establish his position in the band, I guess. He was very political. And there's a famous story. John and Cynthia got married. John, Cynthia rather, well, she got, got pregnant, pregnant in, uh, in the summer of 62. An and unplanned they got, pregnancy. They unplanned. And, you know, what you did back then when you, when you were pregnant was you, you, you got married. And so they did. Mimi, of course, was furious and boycotted the ceremony. Brian was the best man, actually. And she had a baby in uh, April of 63, Julian, named after John's mother, Julia. Well, actually, uh, so it's interesting, you know, Julian's actual name is John. He has two. It's, oh, that's it's, right. It's, he has a, it's John, I think, Charles Julian. Or it's after her father, but John after John. Yeah. And then Julian, and they called him Julian, but Julian was after Julia. It's just important because when you look again later at some of John's music, that Julian was this conglomeration of his mother yeah. and himself in name ends up being important in terms of who he represents to John. Oh, absolutely. And so he was away on tour when he was born. He goes to visit Cynthia and Julian in the hospital and says, oh, this is great. I mean, you know, he's beautiful. By the way, Cynthia, uh, Brian wants to take me to Spain. Uh, we're going to go on vacation in like two weeks. So bye. Well, first and, of all, he wasn't there at the birth. Wasn't there at the he, birth. He comes days later, right? This now establishes this tragic pattern of exactly how he interacts with his son, which, which is, is not at all. He bl- well, he blows in like, woo, you know, yeah. with like toys or, <laughs> yeah. or some sort of very intense uplifting attachment. And then he blows out and he's gone for long periods of time. Yeah. Or he might come in and ignore him. Basically, this is a repetition, right? It's a repetition of the way that he was treated as a child. He does exactly the same thing, tragically, with his own son. It's heartbreaking. And he knew that, too. He would say later on, I felt like a real bastard doing this. But Brian was his manager. And he wanted to have this solo experience with him to really kind of cement his role as the leader. You could say say he felt like a bastard do it, but he had to do it. Or you could say that he had to do it because internally, emotionally, he was driven to... Repeat, it's called repetition compulsion. Mm. It's a way of sort of dealing with trauma is to unconsciously repeat the exact same trauma. But in doing it to someone else, you're in the position of power now. You're not the victim. You're the powerful one who, instead of being left and hurt, is the lever. So essentially, he initiated that relationship with Julian, which was probably overdetermined. And, you know, justified it with, well, Brian says, you know, I have to leave. It was, was really tragic and, you know, left this terrible relationship ultimately with and did the same thing psychologically to Julian, essentially, that had been done to him. It didn't do much for his relationship with his wife. He was off doing a lot of drugs, doing a lot of women and being mostly gone. She just sort of took it and kind of hung in there. Yeah. And yet all this time he is writing music, right? He is writing. And I think, you know, if people look back at even the songs then, they all sound cheery and upbeat and love me do and so on. But there are songs like help, you know, there there are songs that clearly belie some of this 
emotional longing and emotional difficulty and trauma along the way. We're going to leave part one here. On the next episode, we'll get into the worldwide explosion of the Beatles band and how John deals with a level of fame few human beings have ever had to deal with. We will discuss John the composer, husband, and father, the impact of drugs, loss, and therapy on his mind. And of course, we'll get into his pivotal relationship with Yoko Ono. I want to thank my guest, Jordan Rundhug, for a superb conversation. If you haven't yet, please go check out his podcast, Rivals, about the greatest musical rivalries in history. You won't be disappointed. And if you're interested in more information about the people we discuss on this show, you can check out my book, The Power of Different, or you can follow me on social media at Dr. Gail Saltz or at Personology MD. We'll be back next week with part two of John Lennon. Thanks for listening. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti. Editing, music, and mixing by Lowell Berlanti. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.